Good morning to, and welcome to our Sunday School class. We are continuing our study on eschatology, the uh, doctrine of the last things. And we have defined that, the last things, as being things that happen from the moment of our death on. The nature and the identity of the church is of uh, utmost importance in figuring out how prophecies of the Old Testament and the New Testament will be fulfilled around the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, when it speaks about Israel, is it talking about an, a physical or a national entity, or is the church also included when the Bible talks about Israel? So you can see that that, can be a, a, that is an important thing to know uh, if we're going to have a position concerning the events surrounding the return of Christ, that matches the scriptures best. So that's why we're studying this in a series on eschatology. Last week, we, we did a quick word study on the very word church in the Bible. And we saw that the, the, the word church is used in the Bible for the collection of all true believers through the ages. Anyone who's ever been saved, so the elect. And we call that the invisible church or the victorious church or the eschatological church. We also saw that the word church can be used for the collection of professing Christians and their children at a point in time. So this, what, what all the professing believers are in the world today, the word church is used for that too. It's called the visible church of Jesus Christ or the militant historical church. We saw that the word church can be used for the gathering of believers in the same place, what we have called the local church. That this is it. The word church is used for us here today. And we saw that the, church, the word church is used for the collection of several local churches in the geographical area. Perhaps what we would call a presbytery in our days. And we saw that the word church can be used uh, uh, to talk about the local church as an organism, emphasizing the people in it like 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 does. And lastly, we saw that the, church, the word church um, is used for the church as an institution to which the sacraments were given, which exercises church discipline, to which corporate worship was given, which is called the ground and pillar of the truth. And that's really how we're using the definition church for our purposes here. But as I said last week, all these are not, uh, uh, they're not exclusive categories they do uh, blend in, in each other. So, uh, though these are true categories, they're not completely mutually exclusive. Any questions on what in this review part? Yes, Andrew. Of all those definitions, is one of them the most prominent or significant? No, I think they're no because they're all used in the Bible, right? So, there's not one. Uh, I think in the epistles. You're going to find a balance between um, the local church, the invisible church, and the visible church. Uh, those will be in the epistles, will be the three, I think, most common uses of it. So, yes, Rick. I cannot improve perfection because my definitions are perfect. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> militant means fighting, right? So the visible church on earth is not a church at rest. It's not a church that experienced all the benefits of, uh, that Christ has purchased for her 
through his death and resurrection. We're not sin-free. We're still fighting Satan. We're still fighting sin. So we're militant. We're fighting. All right. Any, any other questions before we continue? Okay. So we're going to continue today. And let's just see. What question I want to answer is this. Now, often... You guys didn't tell me I didn't change the picture. So you have to tell me, okay? Uh, uh, the question is this. Since the word church is not used in the Old Testament, shouldn't we assume that it didn't exist in the Old Testament? I've heard that quite a few times. Well, the word church is not used in the Old Testament. So doesn't that, doesn't that mean that the church didn't exist in the Old Testament? Though this is a common question, it's not based on a full understanding of how the biblical languages work. Uh, for reasons that are beyond the scope of this lesson, uh, the earliest English translators of the Bible chose to use the English word church to translate only the Greek word ekklesia, leaving its Hebrew equivalents to the, be translated by other English words such as congregation and assembly. You're going to find those two words in the Old Testament quite a bit, congregation and assembly, because for some reason uh, the uh, English translators decided that to reserve the word church for one particular Greek word. Now it suffices to say here that these translations weren't textually, linguistically, or theologically driven. They are solely stylistically driven. So it's not like they came out with a theological conclusion that the word church should only be used in the New Testament. Uh, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, actually uses the word ecclesia, which is the word church that is commonly used in the New Testament, over 300 times to describe Israel as a religion institution in the Old Testament. For example, in the Septuagint, which is the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, is likely what most Jews used in the first century when the New Testament was being used because Hebrew had died as a spoken language. And unless you're in Palestine itself, you probably used a Greek translation of the Old Testament throughout the world. And in Psalm 22, verse 22, it says, I tell, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I'll praise you. That word congregation is the same word in the Septuagint translated church in the New Testament. So you can see that uh, at least 3rd century BC Jews believed that that word is appropriately used to refer to the religious entity called Israel. And the Holy Spirit inspired author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, and he uses exactly the Septuagint version. Uh, I use here in the, the King James translation because it makes more apparent, where in Hebrews 12, 2, 12, quoting Psalm 22, it says, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto, unto thee. Do you see, the, do you see the, what I'm talking about here? Psalm 22 uses this word in Hebrew, means, but when the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Hebrews, he substituted that word for the word church there for us to understand exactly what that word in Hebrew meant. Uh, Stephen, remember Stephen in the book of Acts, the a deacon was full of the Holy Spirit. He confirms that it is appropriate to think of Israel as the church, at least from a linguistic perspective, when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this in, in Acts 7.38. This is he that was in the church 
in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in the Mount Sinai. So when Stephen thinks about the church of Israel going through the wilderness, as here specifically standing at Mount Sinai, and Moses is receiving the law of God, he calls that the church of uh, there in Acts 7, 38. So the bottom line is, had the Old Testament been written in Greek, it is very likely that the English word church would have been plastered throughout its pages. Therefore, we can put to rest the argument that because the English word church is not in our modern translations of the Old Testament, the church didn't exist then. That's not a good sound argument. This argument just doesn't make linguistic sense. The, the word is there, it's just not in English. Any questions about what I just said concerning the presence of the word church in the Old Testament? All right. Next thing I want us to see is that God established his church when he entered into a covenant with Abraham. That's the beginning of the visible church of God. Virtually all Presbyterian and Reformed denominations in the world accept the Belgic Confession's definition of the marks of a true church. And you all remember what the Belgic Confession was because we studied it in 20. 19. One lesson, and we all memorize that lesson and we know all about it, right? But the Belgian Confession is the only confession, uh, Reformed Confession, whose author was actually a martyr. He uh, died for his faith, and it's uh, broadly accepted as a very good definition of, or summary of what the Bible says. In that confession, which is universally accepted in the Reformed Presbyterian world, in section 29, it says this of the marks of the true church and wherein she differs from false churches. So the confession is saying, what is a true church? What, how can you identify if a church is present? This is how they define. It says, they say, we believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God, which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not there of hypocrites who are mixed in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects who call themselves the church. Okay, that's all preliminary stuff. This is what we, this is what stuff we need to pay attention to. Where the, the Belgian Confession says, the, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached, so Mark 1 is the gospel preached. Okay. Two, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ. So Mark number two, are the sacraments being observed faithfully? Mark number three, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin. So that's the third mark. Of a faithful church. If these things, if these three, if these three things are present, then the church is present. Are you with me so far? So these are the three identifying marks of a church. Now Calvin, John Calvin disagreed. He did not think that church discipline was of the essence of the church. That you could have a true church without church discipline. Uh, but he was in the minority. On this one. All right.
I know it's Sunday morning and uh, there's a lot of mental exercises, but we're going to keep on going here so that we can get the cobwebs off of our head. So using this broadly accepted definition of the church, we can identify the first time that these three elements were present in one institution. So where is the first time in the Bible where the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and church discipline was present? When we identify that, that's the beginning of the true church of Jesus Christ. Well, the first time we find all these three elements present is in the covenant God makes with Abraham, particularly in Genesis chapter 17, which is way earlier than most of you probably grew up believing or being taught that the, you know, most of most evangelicalism in the United States, they teach that the church began in Acts chapter 2. They are a few thousand years late in their assessment. The church began with Abraham. Abraham is commanded in, the, the, in that covenant to administer the sign of the covenant to all who are eligible. Every male in his house. Romans 4 actually calls that the sacrament of the Abrahamic covenant. It says that circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant. And what is this language of sign and seal? Isn't that the language of sacrament? Look at what uh, it says in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised, so that so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. So what is God saying? Here, Abraham, you are to faithfully practice the sacraments. In this case, circumcision. Look at that, the first mark. One of the marks of a true church present in the Abrahamic covenant. But they didn't stop that. Abraham was to cut off from his household anyone who refused the proper administration of the sacrament of circumcision. And, and uh, in verse 14 of Genesis 17, it continues, and God says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the forest for his skin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The idea here is that Abraham is to circumcise every male in his household. And if a male refuses the proper administration of the sacrament, he is to be cut off. Now, means put out of the household, put out of that people. And God likes a little bit of irony. I don't know if irony is the figure of speech I'm looking for. Uh, but he says, if, it, if he doesn't want to be cut off, cut him off. That's, that's what uh, uh, God is saying here. So here, faithful administration of the sacraments, faithful practice of church discipline. Now, what are we missing? Preaching, right? The preaching of, well, Abraham then faithfully proclaimed the word of the covenant to his 
household. God is speaking here in Genesis 18, verse 19. God says, For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham that what he has spoken to him. So what is God saying? I know Abraham, he is going to proclaim the word I gave to him. He's going to make sure his children know what's going on. He's going to make sure his household knows what's going on. And you might say, but where is the gospel? Well, Jesus tells us in John 8 that Abraham knew of him and rejoiced in him. In Romans 4, Paul tells us that Abraham believed the same gospel that we believe. So when he's teaching his household, he's preaching to them, he is preaching the gospel. Look at that. All three marks of a true church present in the Abrahamic covenant. So before Abraham, people were calling on the name of the Lord. Uh, Genesis 4 is the first time that this expression used, people calling on the name of the Lord. And we know for, for certain that the first person to have faith in, in God was Abel, saving faith. I mean, it, it's likely that Adam and Eve were believers, but the book of Hebrews explicitly tells us that Abel was a believer. But the people of God are not organized into a body, and the worship of God is not regulated till God enters into covenant with Abraham. And that is the beginning of the visible church. Not Acts chapter 2, but the book of Genesis, and the very foundation of the organization of the institution of the visible church of Jesus Christ. Any questions before we continue? Everybody's like... Maybe we should just take a moment, let that sink in before we continue. But we're not. We're just going to continue. So, um, as we see that then, that the church began with Abraham, the Abraham, as we say, with Abrahamic covenant, we also see that, the, that there is a unity in the church under the Abrahamic covenant. We have things that tie them together. Things look different, right? You know, from Abraham to Moses to David to the kingdom to the captivity to the New Testament. But there's also unifying themes that keep all these different administrations of God's covenant of grace together. That it, tells, it helps us see that they are part of the same body. Now, every f- subsequent covenant in the history of redemption flows from the Abrahamic covenant. And it's promised that God will be our God and that he will be our people. That's the, that we will be his people. That's really the connecting, the unifying uh, truth that unites the church through the centuries. That God is going to be the promise that God is going to be our God, and that we're going to be his people. We see that in the Mosaic covenant. That's central to the Mosaic covenant. We see that in the Davidic covenant, the covenant with David, and we see that in the new covenant as well. That's the main promise of the new covenant. Even though. Every covenant in the Bible adds more understanding to the promises made to Abraham. They are grounded on the same principle. And that principle is the Emmanuel principle. God with us. Every time God speaks by way of covenant, He's unfolding more the truth that God is with us that's first established in the Abrahamic covenant. So there are discontinuities between each administration of the Abrahamic Covenant, but the overall unity is obvious. God is with us. He is our God, and we are His people. And He doesn't say that to anybody else except to 
his Israel, what we're going to see, his church. Any questions before we continue? Katie Hoy. For, uh, maybe to know that it's not that circumcision was unique was not unique to Israel. The uniqueness of it was how young. Uh, therefore, you don't remember, <laughs> because most of the other places will be a, pass, a rite of passage between childhood and adulthood. So it'll be 13 and 15 years old, and that will mark you for life in more than one way. Uh, there. So in some ways, as far as the practice of the ancient Near East, it was way more merciful to be circumcised at eight days than to be circumcised later on in life. Okay? All right. uh, anything else? All right. Notice how the New Testament speaks of our salvation being the result of the Abrahamic covenant. You ever notice that? As you read the New Testament, particularly Paul's epistles, how they tie the fact that you and I, who are not Jews, I'm not aware of any ethnic Jew in our church. If, there are, if you are, I'm sorry, I'm not aware of you. Uh, you and I, who are not ethnic Jews, are saved because God entered into a covenant with Abraham. For example, those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ have Abraham for their father according to the promises to him, made to him in Genesis. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, talking about Abraham, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Us all here is all who believe, as the context tells us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. What is Paul referring to as the basis of Abraham being our father because we're believers? Uh, that's a quote from the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, and continues, In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that no, do not exist, in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your spring be. And the point Paul is making is that your salvation, my salvation, is the evidence that that promise to Abraham that is going to be a father of many nations and his offspring is going to be more numerous than the stars of the heaven, the grains of sand in the seashore, and the dust, uh, the particles of dust on the earth, is, we are the evidence of that. We are the evidence of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant as we've been united to Christ. The gospel we believe in today was preached to Abraham. Uh, grab a Bible, if you could, and turn to Galatians chapter 3 for a second. will be more than a second. So the gospel we believe in, in, the gospel we believe in today was preached in the Abrahamic covenant. Galatians 3, look at verse 5. Galatians 3, starting at verse 5. Paul says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to, and to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed among the, with, along with Abraham, the man of faith. If you're not part of the Abrahamic covenant, then you don't have salvation. That's as simple as that. Your salvation is the result of the Abrahamic covenant. If we are part of a different institution altogether than that one started with Abraham, we have no hope. We're going to hell. Unless we are part of the Abrahamic covenant, unless our origin is in the Abrahamic covenant, we have no hope. The Abrahamic covenant was never been, has never been annulled. And the salvation of Gentiles depends on it. Look at verses 15 through 18 of that same chapter. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as to many, but as one. Now let me start here and make a side argument. You see how important the very words of the Bible are? Paul is making his whole theological argument on a word being singular instead of plural. You see that? It doesn't say seeds, it says seed. His whole theology is grounded on the fact that that was the perfect word that God used, free of mistake, the word seed instead of seeds. And he continues, into your seed who is Christ, verse 17. And this I shall say, that the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before the God of, in Christ. That it should make the promise of no effect. See, what came after did not annul, did not change what God had promised to Abraham. For if the inheritance of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Drop down to verse 28 of that same chapter. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither a slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring or seed according to the heirs, heirs according to the promise. You see that there? That unless you are part of the Abrahamic covenant, you have no part in Christ. But you, if you are in Christ, you are part of the Abrahamic covenant. You are heirs of Abraham. Abraham is our father. We're part of the institution that began with Abraham, the institution that we call the church. So our hope today depends on the Abrahamic covenant being an everlasting covenant that applies to us Gentiles as much as it is applied to Old Testament Israel. And we see that is the case in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. We're not going to turn there. And since it was decided by the screen that we shouldn't see pictures anymore, we're going to stop here. But that's important to keep in mind that why is it that we are here today? It's because we are members, heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. We're part of that same household, the same institution that began with Abraham, sometimes called Israel, sometimes called the church. Any questions before we close? Yes, Keith. What about when they can't be circumcised? Are they grandfathered in as a wife? 
the, the, if you look at the Bible, uh, the, a woman is, all, uh, is always identified by representation. In the Old Testament, if you look at, for example, a passage like Numbers 30 and 31, a woman goes from being her, her father's daughter to being her husband's wife. So headship is a, is a big part of, of that, right? So that, there's representation there. She's represented in her father's circumcision. And that's foreign to us because we in the United States are so individualistic, we don't like the idea of God dealing with families by representation, even though we live in a federation, supposedly. Our country is supposed to be a federative republic. Uh, but that's, that's the case. And then when New Testament comes, right, when the New Covenant comes, I should say, it's a better covenant, and the sacraments now is available to all involved in the sacrament of baptism. So not only men are receiving the sacrament, but also women receive the, the sacrament. Any other questions before we... Uh, yes, Hannah. <laughs> So other nations were doing it, but were doing it differently, right? Uh, for example, the Philistines didn't do it. So that's why in the Old Testament, they, they are the uncircumcised Philistines, right? Egypt, which was the main power at the time, did it, but was at 13 to 15 years old. Very different, very painful, and so on. So there's a difference that's done there. Uh, the same with baptism. Uh, the, the baptism is not something peculiar invented in the New Testament. It's something that was done Broadly, and God just uses it, infuses it with meaning. Hey, do you know that saying called baptism? Let me tell you how I mean that, what I mean by that. The same with circumcision. And remember, Abraham is a good 800 years, 900 years before there's Israel come into the picture. So circumcision is not so tied with the nation of Israel as we might think it should be. Any, let's, yes, follow up there, Chris. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Now, you cannot be part of Israel without being circumcised. Right? We cannot be part of a religious Israel. We can be part of the nation of Israel without being circumcised. and not part of the religious. And that's something that we miss sometimes. You could, part, we could, you could be a national Israelite. You could be part of the nation of Israel and not be part of the church. Like lepers. Lepers were citizens of the nation of Israel, but they could not be part of the religious life of Israel. So we... We sometimes forget that the, the nation of Israel, the borders of the nation of Israel are not the same borders of the Church of Israel. Tilly. The, um, in the church in Acts, it seems confusing to me that they were still Yeah, some of them, not all. Right? None of the apostles were baptized. There's a circumcised. Right? Yeah. The only one we know is Paul that was baptized. Right? So it, the book of Acts is a transitional book. So you have that. It, it's, um, I, when I was young, I used to I, make mixtapes. Now I had, I had two turntables with vinyls. <laughs> she knows what I'm talking about. Uh, Heather knows what I'm talking about. And, and you'd fade, try to fade one song into the other song so you could 
hear the end of the other song fading when the new song is already coming up. So both are happening at the same time there. That's the book of Acts. You have the fading of the old covenant and the institution of the new covenant at the same time. So you have Paul going to the temple and offering sacrifices at the same time telling the Galatians, you go to hell if you do that sort of thing. No. So no contradictions, but you have that fading of one and the coming in of the other. So that's what's going on there in the book of Acts. That's why often we don't look at Acts as prescriptive as it is descriptive of what's going on. All right? Okay, so we'll pray. And then in two weeks, remember, no Sunday school next Sunday. We're going to have food instead. So we're welcome to come at 10 for uh, fellowship and pastries. And then the following Sunday, we'll go back to 9.45 Sunday school. Okay? So let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness to your church. And we thank you that you have called us to be your people and promised to be our God. We pray to dismiss us now with your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.